many of you have read the book of Genesis today? Would you raise your hand? No one? Oh, here's a couple. Fine. Good. Any, no one else? What if you meet Moses when you get to glory? And uh, he asks you, did you ever read my book all the way through? I often think, you know, that uh, it's very wise for all the, uh, every Christian to be sure that they've read the whole Bible through. Imagine how it would be if you met Obadiah or uh, Habakkuk. And he said to you, how did you enjoy my book? Was it any blessing to you? Won't it be embarrassing to have to keep changing the subject throughout all eternity? <laughs> no, this book is given to us to read. And I hope, I realize I rather sprang it on you this morning, the idea of, of reading Genesis all the way through in one sitting. I'm glad uh, a couple of you did, but the rest of you do it this week, will you? This is a great book, a tremendous book. And tonight we're going to begin right at the very first of the Bible and go through the entire book again. Not tonight. I mean, we start with Genesis tonight. But we are going to go through the entire Bible. It may take us a year or more. But on uh, these Sunday evenings, we'll take each book in order as it goes through. And some of the smaller books, we'll combine them together. But uh, we'll go through the whole of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, and uh, look at it in its setting its, and its relationship. We've already done this in a great panora panoramic view of Scripture, which I feel uh, is a, one of the most helpful ways to understand and see the divine pattern of, of uh, Revelation, one of the most tremendous, unanswerable proofs of inspiration is to see the divine pattern that runs through the Bible. How could it be, if it is not from God, that a book as diverse in its authorship as this, written under the most uh, uh, diverse conditions, should have such a remarkable pattern of truth, unless it comes from one divine author? Now tonight we want to begin with Genesis. And uh, this is the book which obviously, is the book of beginnings. I think sometimes we're so familiar with this book, I mean the whole Bible as well as the book of Genesis, that we scarcely think of what an ancient book this is. There is a, a Greek uh, philosopher and teacher and scholar who lived... Uh, uh, some 300 years before Christ, named Herodotus. And Herodotus is called the father of history because he is the first writer to ever record much of history whose writings have been preserved to us. And everyone who studied ancient history knows something of the writings of Herodotus. But the interesting thing about the Bible is that Moses, who... Uh, wrote the first five books of our Bible, had finished his books and was in his grave a thousand years before Herodotus ever was born. And that's how ancient this book is. It takes us back into the very dawn of human history. 
And yet as we read it, it's as up-to-date as tomorrow morning's newspaper. That again is a mark of the, uh, of the divine afflatus behind this book, the inspiration of the book. Uh, and uh, the Bible adds so much of color and life about it in these revelations of early days in human life. Any of you that have studied archaeology know that these uh, cylinders and slabs and, and potsherds from the past give us just the briefest glimpse of the most of the barest facts of life in these ancient lands. But there's little of human interest about them. There's no color, there's no life, there's no flesh. But when you open the pages of the book of Genesis, you discover here that these men come alive. Abraham is as well known to us as some of our more distant relatives, isn't he? And uh, uh, Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and some of the others are familiar household names to us. We feel like uh, there's somebody we knew back in the place we used to live at. They're as close to us as that. Because this book has so marvelously preserved for us the color and the depth and the flesh and the tone of life back in these days. Now, it's not only an, a history. Obviously, it would have little significance to it if it were only that. It would be the, probably the most important history in all the world if that's all it were. But the book of Genesis is a book with a tremendous message. And the message of this book can be declared in one statement. It reveals to us the inadequacy of man without God. That's the whole purpose of the book. And as such, it strikes the keynote of all the subsequent revelation of God. It reveals to us that man can never be complete without God. That he can never fulfill or discover the true meaning of his life without an, a, 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 a personal, genuine relationship with an indwelling God. Now, this inadequacy is revealed to us in three realms, realms in which each of us live. First of all, it's revealed in the realm of natural relationships. That is, uh, the realm of what we call the natural sciences. Uh, cosmogony, the study of the universe and its makeup and origin. Biology, the study of life itself, geology, the earth, and all the manifold aspects of science that we know so, we at least think we know so much of today. These are the realms of natural relationships. Our, uh, uh, our contact with the physical world around about us. And then the second area is the realm of human relationships. And this takes in what we call today sociology and psychology, psychiatry, and uh, all the other uh, sites uh, that are made so much of today. And then finally, the realm of spiritual relationships, theology, soteriology, philosophy, and these matters. And in all three of these vital areas in which all of us are concerned, the, the book of Genesis reveals that man, apart from God, is totally inadequate. That's its one message, sounding through the book, just like the knell of a, of a bell all the way through. Now, let me show you what I mean. The first two chapters are, are largely concerned with the world of nature. This book opens with a recognition of the greatest material fact in our life today. The fact that we live 
in a universe. We become aware of that. Step out under the stars at night and look up, uh, and uh, even the most ignorant of us wonders, what in the world is out there? These flaming stars, these brilliant lights in the heavens. And uh, we wonder at the movement of the heavenly bodies. Man has stood and gazed and in awe and wonderment at this sight for centuries. And at last we've begun to probe out into the universe around about us. We've discovered we live in a great galaxy, a marvelous uh, body of stars and planets, millions of them, 300,000 light years across in our own galaxy. And that that galaxy is just the uh, home base for us in the universe. That first base is way on out further and third base, second base, clear on out farther, and they're in this great ball game of the universe, there are over millions of bases out there, galaxies like ours. And uh, our minds begin to blow a fuse when we start thinking like this. But the scripture opens with that. It begins right on that note. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and man. And that's the story of the beginning of, uh, uh, of Genesis, that uh, we're in a universe which is ma- mainly mystery to us. We know very little about it. And in any direction that we go, we come to the place where soon we can go no further. I was talking with a nuclear physicist the other day, and he was telling me something of the complexity of the makeup of the nucleus of the atom. He says it's become so, so astronomically complex that we simply cannot begin to grasp all that we're discovering about the simplest elements of matter. And uh, it's right on this point that the Bible begins. Because it, it uh, uh, begins with the answers to the questions which the scientists cannot answer. Where did we come from? Who made us? Why are we here? What is it that keeps the universe going? Science has not yet found any answers to any of those questions. And uh, yet this study of the universe is the theme of science today. Now to these questions, Genesis supplies an answer. It tells us the only answer that fits. It reveals to us that the key to human life in, in, including the material universe around about us, plus the mystery of our own nature, plus that invisible realm of spirit life that we know very little about, the key to all life is spiritual. Not physical, not material, but, phys- but spiritual. That's why we never can know ourselves or God or the universe by studying nature. We never understand it. Ultimately, we run up against a closed door. It becomes so complex we cannot grasp it because the key, the Bible tells us, is in the spiritual realm. And when we take this book and open it up, we discover we're moving past all the discoveries of science today into a realm to which science has not yet come where we have answers to these problems and these questions. It was no less a person than, than uh, Albert Einstein 
who put his finger squarely upon the inadequacies of science when he said, science is like reading a, a mystery novel. He said, you go down to the corner drugstore and you buy a, a, dime store, a dime novel. Of course, they cost 50 cents now. And you take it home and uh, go to bed at night and everybody else has left the house and it's dark. And you get in bed and turn on the light and prop yourself up with pillows and start in reading. And in the first chapter, there are two or three murders and two or three bodies lying around. And the whole focus of the story begins to center on who done it. And as you read on, you get some clues. And uh, in about the third chapter, you've decided that it was the butler. And as you go on, more and more, the finger of guilt points at the butler. And as you, but as you read on, you at last come to the last chapter in which suddenly all the previous evidence is upset and it turns out that it wasn't the butler at all. It was the little old lady in tennis shoes that lives on the third floor up. She did it. Now, Einstein says that's what science is like. It's always struggling to find out something with a few clues here and a few clues there. But it never gets an answer. And then suddenly come, something comes along that throws it all off. And we've been living through a time like that. So that all the previous answers are of no value at all. Now, the interesting thing about this book is it starts right where science leaves off. It gives answers right from the start. Answers addressed to faith, admittedly, but never faith that is a violation of human reason. But it's faith. Science is always facing the past. Genesis begins where science is trying to come. And if we look at it that way, we'll see that there's no essential conflict here at all. Because here's a book that is simply dealing with matters that science has not yet wrestled with and cannot wrestle with. The key to the mystery of human life. Now in chapters 3 to 6, you get the realm of human relationships. For here we have the entrance of man into the, into the picture. And uh, this book reveals that the basic unit of society is the family. And for... What, 10,000, 20,000 years of human history? There has been absolutely no variation from that pattern. The basic element of human life today is still the family. And when a society begins to forget that fact and destroy family life, the nation, the foundations of the nation begin to crumble. Because a nation is nothing more than the extension of the family. That's all. The nations of the world are simply great family groups. Weren't we so aware of that on the night that Kennedy, uh, President Kennedy was assassinated? There never was a time, I think, when the whole American nation felt so like a family as when President Kennedy lay in death. We were all one people. And a nation is nothing more than a gigantic family. But inside that is the basic unity of society revealed here in the scripture, the family, uh, the single individual family. And when that crumbles, the nation begins to fall. Now, this, these chapters also reveal the failure of man in this relationship, because man tries to be man without God. And the result, of course, 
is the introduction of the principle of sin, which is nothing more than the monkey wrench that's been thrown into the human machinery that makes us behave the way we do. When you read the account here, you see how Cain refused God and became a murderer and went out to found a civilization that ended in apostasy and the flood. And when Lot tried to move away from God and get away from the influence of God in his life, he wrecked his family as a result. And the story uh, is given again and again in the pages of this book. And though we live, uh, who can tell how many thousands of years after these events it's the same story today isn't it? it's every generation has been repeating the same cycle we see it today all around us uh, in our nation with lovely homes and new cars and everything but riddled with strife and violence and evil almost unmentionable more than it's ever been before an increasing crime wave and broken homes on every side all a result and all a testimony to man's failure to live even on the human relationship level apart from God. And then on the last part of the book, which is one great section, beginning with chapter 6, middle of chapter 6 down through chapter 50, you have the realm of spiritual relationships. That's why it's the largest part of this book, because that's the most important part of man, his spirit. And his relationship to God. And this is the story of just five men, that's all. And if you remember the lives of these five men and what they mean, you will have most of Genesis right in the palm of your hand. Five fingers. There is Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. Those five men. And Genesis reveals through the story of these five men what it is that man is seeking after all the time. You know what it is? We think that we're seeking after things, but we know after we get them that that isn't what we wanted after all. And uh, all the restlessness and the rush of the age in which we live can be focused, can be seen to be focusing or attempting to focus upon three things that man is looking for. For righteousness, that is the sense of being right. This is why we're always justifying ourselves. Whenever anybody accuses us, what accuses you of something, what do you do? You start justifying yourself. You want to be right. And man is forever seeking rightness, righteousness. The second is peace. He wants a sense of, of uh, well-being inside. Peace. How often we see it in our newspapers. How much we talk about it. How often the word is is flung at us in these days of modern communication. Man ever seeking peace. The third thing is joy. He wants a sense of gladness, of happiness out of life. And those three things are what life, uh, are, are the goals, the, the unseen, almost unconscious goals of life. Righteousness, peace, joy. Where are they found? Romans 14 says, The kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness, joy, and peace in the Holy Spirit. Only God can give men these things. And this is the story of this book. Now it reveals how man who did not believe God or obey God sought these things in vain. 
Jacob, you know, for a time refuses to obey God and insists on doing things on his own and goes out and becomes a wanderer and the hired servant of his uncle. And he's not only a deceiver, but he ends up being deceived. And life falls apart at the scenes point. Even Abraham falters occasionally and goes down to Egypt and falls into lying and adultery. And when he does, again, life falls apart for him. But if this book, Genesis, reveals the inadequacy of man without God, it also reveals the adequacy of man with God. And that's the great message. In natural relationships, you see that man with God is a sovereign, is the sovereign of nature. Oh, I wish I would, had known Adam back in the days before his fall. What a character he must have been. What tremendous power, what knowledge he must have had of the secrets of nature. When we look at the New Testament and read of the miracles of the Lord Jesus, walking upon the water, changing the water to wine, uh, some, uh, stilling the storm with a word, we, we say to ourselves, that's God. At work. But the New Testament says, no, that isn't God. That's man. That's man. That was what man was intended to be. The sovereign of nature. The king of the world. And uh, you find it reflected in the eighth psalm. David says as he looks into the heavens, what is man that thou art mindful of him? Or the son of man that thou hast visited him? And then he answers his question. Thou hast made him. To have dominion over all things. I was put all things under his feet. And you only see that in Jesus. That's why the book writer of Hebrews says, We do not yet see all things subjected to him, but we see Jesus, the one who as man is the fulfillment of God's intention for man to be sovereign of the earth. And in the garden... Before Adam fell, you see him as the Lord of creation. He knew its mysteries. He controlled its activities. And uh, man cannot do that any longer today. We have the urge to do it, but we no longer can control it. In the realm of human relationships, the book of Genesis reveals that man with God is seen at living in peace with, in harmony with other men. One of the most beautiful stories in this book is to see Abraham dwelling under the oaks at Mamre and the Canaanites all around about him, the men who were to be his enemies and who for many years had been his enemies. But God so worked in the life of that man, Abraham, that even his enemies were made to be at peace with him. And the story of Abraham closes with his uh, the Canaanite tribes coming to him and saying to him, Thou art a prince among us. So that is fulfilled what God says elsewhere, that if a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. This is the key. This is the secret to life in all its relationships, is what he's saying. And then, of course, in the spiritual relationships, Genesis declares that man in fellowship with God begins to know supreme happiness and the righteousness and the peace and the joy that men always crave, only as he discovers that the indwelling God is the answer to all his need. Now you get this in the story of these five men, and let me quickly give you these. 
Noah is a picture to us of regeneration. Noah was a man who went through death in a picture. He was on both sides of the flood. He was preserved in the ark through the waters of judgment, through the waters of death, to come out into a new world, into a new life. The, uh, the imaginative writers of our day are always trying to write a book that would depict what would happen after the atomic holocaust completely wipes life off the face of the earth. And what it would be like for a new couple to start out or in a world again. And yet, none of them ever seem to realize that that's exactly what's happened in the story of the flood and Noah. And none have ever caught the romance of that man and his family starting out in a new earth. But there's a picture of regeneration. The beginning of life for the Christian is when we pass from death into life. Just as Noah did in the flood. Then comes Abraham. And what does Abraham teach us? Justification by faith. Here's a man who lived by faith. Everything that he did was given to him. Not by any merit of his own. Not by any effort of his own. But as God led him along. And Abraham stepped out upon the promise. He found that God's promise was true. Eight times that man's faith was tremendously tried. And if you're ever in a trial of faith, read the life of Abraham and you'll find one of the, the evidences, the same circumstances that you're going through in his life. But Abraham teaches us what it means to be justified, to be the friend of God by faith. Then comes uh, 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 Isaac. And Isaac is a beautiful picture of sonship, what it means to be a son of God. If there ever was a boy that was spoiled, pampered, petted, loved by his father, it was Isaac. He was the son, preeminently so. And uh, as you see the glimpse that the book of Genesis gives us of this man, you see what it means to be the darling of a father's heart. And I think there's no message more needed in this day than that which is so beautifully exemplified in Isaac. How God looks at us and he calls us the darling of his heart. Now we are the sons of God, John says. Does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear we are, we shall be like him. And then follows the story of Jacob. And Jacob was the rascal, the schemer, the man who, who thought he could live on his own, by his own wits, by his own efforts, who went out trying to deceive everybody and ended up being deceived. But Jacob is a beautiful picture again of sanctification, that marvelous work of the Spirit of God by which we in our folly and our foolishness, attempting to live life in the energy of the flesh, are led into the very situations which drive us into the corner where at last as Jacob wrestled with an angel, we discover God speaking to us. And we give up. We give up. And when we give up, we begin to live. That's what Jacob found. When he gave up, when at the brook of Peniel, and Esau was waiting there with a, a great uh, band of armed men ready to take Jacob's life, and he wrestled with the angel of God at the brook of Peniel, it was there that God broke Jacob. And as a broken man, limping the rest of his life, he became Israel, a prince with God. What a lesson this is. Some of us are going through this very experience right now. 
What an encouragement to us. And the last picture is Joseph. Glorification. The man who loved of, of his father and mistreated by his brethren, living through this earthly relationship, is suddenly lifted from the darkness of the prison house into the glory of a throne and ruled as the first, uh, as the second person in the kingdom. Now, this is the picture for us of the, of the truth of the believer, isn't it? What do we look forward to as death comes upon us? Isn't it that we are translated suddenly out of the darkness of this earthly existence, the prison house in which we've lived our years, suddenly into the very throne of God himself? Now, it's all there, isn't it? And it fits the pattern so beautifully. We discover that here is what God intends for the believer. And the method by which man reaches God and appropriates all of this is revealed in this book as the method of faith. As you believe it, it becomes true. Not as you just intellectually give credence to it, but as you step out upon it, as you act upon it, it all becomes true in experience. Now then, the final message of Genesis is simply that God is absolutely necessary for the completeness of life. Without God, you can't understand the world around you. You can't understand yourself or your neighbor, and you can't understand God himself. You'll never have any answers without God. But if you have fallen away or you've excluded God, you've found misery, heartache, darkness and death and futility and emptiness and boredom and all these things that are a result of man attempting to live without him. Genesis declares, if you return on the principle of faith in God, you will find help and health and happiness in every realm of life. God is the secret of human life. That's the first note in the Bible, and it's the last. Shall we bow in prayer? Our Father, we pray that thou will give us the urge and the motive to give ourselves to the writings before us. How many, how many uh, difficulties and troubles we could avoid. How many heartaches we could uh, pass by if we only knew what you were intended for us to know in this book. May our hearts be opened with a readiness to receive and to seek and to search and to find and to know that we are in a universe, not a silent universe, not a mechanical universe, not an empty universe in which there's no echo to our cry, but in a universe owned and possessed by a father with a father's heart. And through Jesus Christ, we found that way to that father's heart. And as we Believe this and learn to walk by faith. Thou dost fill life for us to the full. We ask this may be our experience. In Jesus' name, amen.